Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Take your Bible out and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's just look at something that I think is very father-like. I think God the Father has uh, something to say to us today. And in particular, um, in, throughout these uh, Beatitudes, I think he has um, a lot of things to say to us throughout the Beatitudes. Right here in uh, verse 9 today, I've said before, if you've uh, been here, that um, the Beatitudes are meant, uh, these 12 verses that we're going through are not meant to just be extrapolated, unattached from the whole Sermon on the Mount. So um, if you're going to read these, if you're going to study these, if you're going to um, pay attention to what God has to say in these 12 verses, you have to continually um, attempt to connect it to the rest of the sermon. You can't just extrapolate this out, even though it seems like we're doing that uh, a a little bit. I try to draw it back to what is um, God the Father trying to say to us? What does he want to say? What's this got to do with me? So I want to ask some of those questions today. In particular today, um, we're looking at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So um, we know that um, Jesus was talking to all of his guys. He pulled them together up on the side of a mountain. We know that all kinds of other people were listening in. We know so far that um, he's teaching us that these Beatitudes, that these uh, verses right here, that these instructions are a celebration of who you are and what you inherit as a Christ follower in the kingdom of God. We also know that it's an invitation that you can have these attributes, that you can have these qualities, that you can have um, uh, these things as well if you don't have them. So, One of the first things that I realize if you're looking at the entire sermon is that Jesus, as he's teaching this, he's he's trying to say, he's saying over and over, he's saying from beginning to end, one after one, one beatitude after the other, get a new heart, get a new heart. You have the opportunity to have, to acquire a new pure heart. So one after the other, the Beatitudes tell us that the blessings of eternity will be given only to those who've been made new and who have this new heart. For example, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed uh, uh, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called the children of God. So if we don't obtain mercy, we receive judgment. If we don't see God, we're not in heaven. If we aren't called the children of God, we're outside of God's household. These are all descriptions of final, complete, whole salvation. And it's promised only to the merciful, only to the pure in heart, and to the peacemakers. I wouldn't say by any stretch that I am by nature a peacemaker. (laughs) I, I, that's not funny either, even though I'm laughing at it, but because it just doesn't come actually naturally to make peace. I, I, I want justice and I don't want to mingle, with, mingle it with mercy as much as, uh, and that's not my natural nature. 
I just want justice, mostly. I want it to be fair. I want it to be right. Just try cheating at a game and that I'm playing with you and see what's going to happen. I don't want you to get away with that. I don't think it's right, right? I want justice. But, um, but I believe that God has transformed me and made me new and given me a new heart. And I'm even surprised at myself sometimes when I, uh, how merciful I can be and how compassionate I can be because uh, God has given me a new heart. <clears throat> and peacemaking is, um, comes as well. The Beatitudes dispel the false teaching that says if you just believe in Jesus, and this is false teaching, by the way, if you just believe in Jesus, then you're gonna go to heaven. Let me dispel it one way just by saying, Satan believes in Jesus, so what's the difference between you and Satan? Satan believes in Jesus. So it's not just about believing in Jesus. There's gotta be something more to that when we say that. You can't just wing those words around, right? So the Beatitudes are intended to dispel the false teaching that says if you believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven, whether or not you are merciful, whether or not you are pure in heart or a peacemaker, you see, from beginning to end, the Sermon on the Mount cries out, screams out, shouts out, get yourself a new heart, become a new person. The judgment is near. Look at the words of verse 20 of Matthew chapter five. Unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So at the very end of the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon, in Matthew chapter seven, just flip over a couple of pages to verse 26. The Lord calls out over the crowds. He calls out over the crowds so everybody can hear. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. In other words, a life of disobedience to the Beatitudes and to this sermon right here on the mount will not be, ex will, will not be ex um, accepted in the judgment no matter what we believe. So obedience then, the second point here is not an option. It's not optional. Jesus says from beginning to end, Get yourself a new heart. Get yourself a new heart. You have to have a new heart. And I want to impress on you this morning with such, with as much transparency as actually that I can muster that Jesus is not making optional suggestions in the Beatitudes. They're not option, optional su suggestions. And this sermon, in this sermon series that we're doing, is not intended just to make the world a better place. That's not what all this is about. Jesus is describing the pathway to heaven here. And he does it in a really long sermon. In this, in this sermon, this is, uh, in particular, this is a message from God to urge you to get on that pathway, to stay on that pathway, so that you can be called the children of God at the last judgment. We don't like to talk about the last judgment very much. 
We want to pretend like it's not coming, like it's not there and like it's not going to happen. And God would never do that. It's not true. Of course he will. Of course he will. Let's go on to this next uh, point. True children resemble their father. Now, if um, I could show you tons of pictures of my son and I, and you would see that as uh, um, from anywhere from four to 10 years old, we look like the same person. We look like the same person. In fact, my son Mitchell called me on on Thursday or Wednesday this week, um, sometime in the middle of the week, and I got an unusual call from him. He's like, Dad. He goes, you never guess what happened. He's just, the craziest thing happened. So um, he, he, he's uh, um, uh, stationed in uh, Patuxent, Maryland. It's halfway across the world. It's about as far away from us as you could get. And uh, um, it's just, we, you know, he's just way over there at a naval base um, in Maryland. And so um, anyway, he's, uh, his car and he was working on registration and the title and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the kind of, stuff you got to go through when you're in the military um, his title and and everything is still in Arizona but he's stationed over there because it may not be there and he's not there very much and all that right so he called the Arizona transportation department just ask some questions about his title and registration and all that stuff so he got on the phone with this lady and he was asking questions and she stopped him and said hey hold on are you related to Ben Pitney and he, he was kind of stunned and he said, he said, well, yeah, um, he's, um, he's my dad. And she said, oh, that's so awesome. Um, I go to his church. And he, he didn't hardly know what to say. Um, he, he, he had called Arizona Department of Transportation. He didn't realize that he was talking to anybody in Tucson. Um, he didn't think he was talking to anybody in Tucson. And um, I still don't know exactly who he was talking to either. He, he, didn't, he didn't ask enough questions in my view, but he, he said, uh, I said, well, who was it? And he said, she just said her name was Julie. So I don't know if somebody in our church is named Julie that works for the Department of Transportation. Um, but anyway, he was, spent time on the phone. And so Mitch said, he, he said, um, how did you know it was me? How did you know, you know? that um, Ben Pitney was my father. And she said, oh, it's really easy. You sound exactly like him. Now, I don't know if she had records in front of her or whatever, you know, I don't know. But that's what she said. She said, oh, you just, you sound exactly like him, even on the phone. And it's true. Mitchell can call our house fairly often and he does it posing as me, or he can call Linda, posing as me, he, can, he could do it and he could get away with it and start talking as if it was me. It's sort of dangerous. <laughs> but I could do the same thing with my father. I used to call my dad's office all the time. I would call his office and one of his administrative assistants or one of his employees would answer the phone and I would just start talking like I was him and they would go on and on and say, you know, all kinds of things. And I, I loved doing that. I could totally rattle on and even hang up and they wouldn't even know and play a trick on my dad because I sound exactly like him. 
I was just at a funeral just um, uh, a, a week ago and I saw boatloads of cousins and aunts and uncles, people I hadn't seen in an awfully long time, uh, lots of folks and multiple people, multiple people said it and I know they're seeing it and they, uh, true and it's fine, it's, it's even a compliment to me. They said, oh my gosh, you look exactly like your dad. I do, I look exactly like my dad um, at 57 years old. I mean, he and I look like uh, just alike. Why? Because true children resemble their father. They do. God's designed things that way when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. He's not telling us how to become a child of God or children of God. He's not doing that at all. Jesus is simply saying that children of God are in fact peacemakers. Children of God are peacemakers. And people who are peacemakers will be recognized as the children of God at the judgment and welcomed into the Father's house. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, there's a difference there, right? If you want to see how to become children of God, you can look at 1 John 12. 1 John 12 says, I, I, think you, I think you can put that one up, Sherry. I don't know if it's up there or not. 1 John, or it's not 1 John, it's just John 1, 12, sorry. It says, but to all who have received him, that's Jesus, those who believe in his name, he's given the right to become God's children. And Galatians 3, 26 says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, we become children of God by trusting in Christ for forgiveness, for hope. Not cross your fingers kind of hope, but true, truth, hope. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, that people who've become children of God have the character of their heavenly father. And we know from scriptures that the heavenly father is a God of peace. And that heaven is a world of peace. And most important of all, that God is a peacemaker. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He made peace by the blood of the cross. So even though by nature we are rebels against God by nature, that's why I can say truly, I know what my rebel nature is. I, I know what the natural man is. I'm not a peacemaker, I'm a rebel. I've committed high treason against God, against him, and I'm, I, um, I'm uh, worthy of, uh, of eternal court martial, so to speak. I'm totally worthy of that. Nevertheless, God sacrificed his own son for me and declares amnesty for me, free and clear to any, and, and he does this for anyone who would lay down their life of independence and come home to faith and surrender and swear allegiance to Jesus. God is a peace-loving God and God is a peacemaker and that's what he wants to do with all of you and I. That's his intention all along is he wants peace between you and him. He knows that you're a rebel and that you're sinful and that you need a savior and the only savior worthy is the perfect savior Jesus that he sent for us his only son. 
the whole history of, of redemption climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between rebel men and himself. And then between men uh, and, and uh, the world around us as well. God's children have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can, uh, you can know his children by the way they are willing to make sacrifice for peace the way God did. There are so many things that I love because my father loved them. There's so many things that my son loves because I love them. And that's the, the, that's the nature of God as well. And that's what he wants to make right um, in all of us by installing a new heart in us. By the sovereign work of God's grace, rebel human beings can be reborn and brought from rebellion to faith and made into children of God. We were given a new nature after the image of our heavenly father, the scriptures declare, when you surrender allegiance to Jesus. If he is a peacemaker, then his children who have his nature will be peacemakers too. So we don't earn the privilege to be called children of God. We owe our new birth and our new heart to the sovereign grace of God. Our whole salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. That's it. That's our hope and our joy and our freedom, by the way. But our final salvation is not unconditional. Now, hold on. Because this is the whole point here. We must be peacemakers. We must be peacemakers. That is the truth and the great seriousness with which we have to deal with these beatitudes as you look and learn and study these beatitudes and seek the grace of God in your life. The promise of being his children in the second half of Matthew 9, Matthew 5, 9, excuse me, points us to Matthew 5, verse 43 and 45. Will you look down to Matthew uh, 5, verse 43 through 45? Look for yourself. Part of the reason why I don't like putting it up here is because then you don't look for yourself in your own Bible, and I think you should. So I put it up there as well. But look what it says here. 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So look at verse 45. So that you may be like your father in heaven. And the thought here is the same that is in Matthew 5, 9. It's the same. We have to be peacemakers to be called children of God. And here we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us if we're to be like our Father in heaven. If our Father in, uh, is a peacemaker, then his children will be peacemakers too. So first, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. Pray, pray what? In the next chapter, it tells you in Matthew chapter six, verses nine and 10, Jesus says, pray like this. 
Pray that your, uh, you and your enemies would honor God's name. He says, pray that God's kingdom will be acknowledged in your life and in, the, um, and in his life or the uh, lives of others. Pray that, um, that you and he would do God's will the way the angels do in heaven. In other words, pray for transformation. Pray for transformation. The foundation of peace is purity. Pray that there might be peace. Pray for purity in your own heart and life. Then in Matthew 5:47, Jesus gives the other specific example of peacemaking in this text. If you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? What? Why is he saying that? In other words, if there's a rupture, if there's a um, um, uh, animosity between, uh, in, you know, in one of your relationships, if there's someone who opposes you, He's saying, don't nurse that grudge. Don't feed the animosity, uh, animosity by ignoring and avoiding that person. And man, are we great at that. You know, when there's conflict between you and somebody else, you avoid it. People do it all the time. You don't like it. We really don't like it. Oh man, I could tell you tons of stories of just how that emerges. We walk the other way. We avoid people. We, we, we just do it right and left when there's some sort of conflict um, going on in, in, in our lives. <clears throat> it's kind of our nature, all right? But that impulse, all right, of nursing that kind of grudge and feeding that animosity and ignoring and avoiding that person that is the natural thing to do, all right? But that's not the impulse of the spirit of God or the spirit of, of peacemaking God who sacrificed his son to make us new and different. Peacemaking tries to build bridges to people. It wants things to be reunited. It wants harmony. And so it tries to show what may be the only courtesy the enemy will tolerate. Have you thought about this? like a greeting. It's crazy how Jesus uses this. The peacemaker looks at the enemy right in the eye and says, good morning. He says, he says it with a desire for peace in his heart, not with a phony politeness to cover his anger. He says, just start with a greeting for crying out loud. Greet somebody in a reasonable manner. It goes a long way. It begins to build a bridge. You've, I, I, I've actually seen it in really good um, political scenarios where you know we're, uh, as a country, we're at odds with other countries, but somehow political leaders can come together and seem to be uh, reasonable with each other and uh, fairly polite. Maybe in the political realm, outside of that greeting, you're still duking it out and doing all kinds of things, but good leaders can shake hands and look each other in the eye and say hello and be polite to each other, even though they're... Um, Difficult things can go on in other places at other times. I think the point is we need to desire peace. So you can take these practical initiatives to make peace by beginning with something as simple as a greeting. But we're not always going to succeed. It's not going to always work. And what I want to make sure is you don't equate peacemaking with peace achieving not always going to achieve peace, but we need to attempt and try to be peacemaking. A peacemaker desires peace, works for peace, 
sacrifices for peace, but getting peace doesn't always come because that's God's responsibility. And I think it's an important point. If as, if, so as far as it depends on you, Paul says, live peaceably with all when it comes to you and when it depends on you. That's the goal of a peacemaker. If possible, so as far as it depends on you. So don't let this rupture and this animosity in the relationship be your fault. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. Can you believe that he says that? He says, don't think, don't believe. Don't think that I've come to make peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, he says. What? He says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, you must love peace and work for peace. You gotta pray for your enemies and do good to them, greet them and, and, and long and yearn for the barriers between you to be overcome, but you may never abandon your allegiance to me and my word, no matter how much animosity it brings. You've sworn allegiance to me. You've sworn allegiance to me, Jesus says. You're not guilty by swearing allegiance to me. You're not in the wrong if your life of obedience and your message of love and truth elicits hostility from some and affirms um, an affirmation from others. And Jesus said, that's what's gonna happen. But he says, you should aim for purity over peace. And it's just this warning maybe that Jesus wants to sound when the very next beatitude, if you look at the very next one, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. In other words, righteousness mustn't be compromised in order to make peace with your persecutors. When Jesus pronounces a blessing on you for being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, he clearly subordinates the goal of peace to the goal of righteousness. So what's this all got to do with me? I like asking that question. If you knew Pastor Coop, Tim Coop at Pantano Christian Church, he would say, so what? <laughs> he would say, so what? So what has this got to do with me? I think it's a great thing to ask. So I wanna close by dealing with just this question that a message like this would raise for some people today. Why, in view of all the world's situations, does this message on peacemaking kind of confine itself to the personal dimensions of prayer and greeting and individual reconciliation and all that? Of all the things that we could talk about today, these are personal issues and don't, aren't they insignificant compared to all these other issues of a, a need for peace out there in the world? I mean, think of it, right? Think of it, uh, how we're on edge all the time uh, in, in, in the world, even though uh, you know, the world is relatively at peace right now, but there's, there's tremendous terrorism issues all around the, you know, we're constantly um, bombarded with the possibilities of things happening like uh, another 9-11 kind of scenario. And being at war, you know, in, in other countries in the Middle East with Russia, with um, North Korea, you know, on, on and on. Afghanistan, we're still fighting there. We still have 
a, a huge military presence. We just kind of sent uh, a whole bunch of military presence into, um, uh, I, forget that, I forget that what that waterway is where uh, Iran is always trying to, is that the Strait of Bermuda or whatever it is, right? Well, they're, they're always pretending like they're not trying to aggravate people and put bomb tankers and all that kind of stuff and, say, you know, and then they say, no, we're not doing it. Like, we, like any of us believe that, right? They're trying to poke the bear every chance they get, right? But things like that happen, you know, what do we want? We want to be at war with, uh, uh, with Iran? I mean, uh, no, are, are you kidding? You think Israel wants to be at war with uh, the Palestinians or anybody else? Uh, they, they don't, they just want peace. They even, they, the, the, the Israel, Israel's um, military, they call it the Israel Defense Force. They don't call it an, uh, necessarily an army. They call it, a, it's a defense force. They only want to play defense, really. They don't want to play offense. Whether you believe that or not, I, I, I think that they, they, they truly do want peace. What's this got to do with me? It seems like, you know, if Jesus was really focused here, he would pay attention to all this other stuff. Seems so much bigger than our own little stuff that's going on in our lives. But before you can answer the question, you, you, you got to ask another one. Was Jesus unaware that the iron hand of the Roman Empire rested on the tiny land of the Jews without uh, uh, their consent? I mean, it was crazy at the time. Was he aware that... Um, uh, that Archelaus slaughtered 3,000 Jews at a Passover celebration? Was Jesus aware that the Roman soldiers could conscript any Jew to choose and carry their bags? Uh, was, he, um, was he aware that Pilate had his soldiers bludgeon a crowd of Jews protesting his stealing from the uh, temple treasury? Was Jesus uh, aware that Pilate massacred Jews on the temple ground and mixed their blood in their, with, with their sacrifices they were offering? Was Jesus just unaware of all these things? When Jesus spoke of enemies, why did he confine himself to prayer, personal greetings, and a blessing, and individual deeds of generosity and kindness? Why didn't he talk about all the issues of national humiliation, and Roman oppression, and political corruption, and the unbridled uh, militarism of, uh, of the day? Was he just utterly out of touch with the big issues of the day, so that we couldn't apply him to the big issues of our day? Why is he focused on just these individual things in our hearts? What's, what's that all about? I think there's a, an explanation for why he preaches the way he does. In Luke chapter 13, there's five verses right there at the beginning. Some people confronted Jesus with one of Pilate's atrocities. They confront him. And here's the way he responds. Uh, there was some... Uh, there were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered to them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, no, I tell you the truth, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's like, hey, you think the sin um, of people that are committing atrocities is any different than your own sin in your life? He took a major social outrage of injustice and turned it into a demand for personal, individual repentance. 
Unless you repent, he says, you're just like them. You're exactly like them. That's what he always did. Why did he do this? Because for Jesus, the eternal destiny of a human soul, that's bigger. That's the biggest thing in the world. That's, a big, that's the biggest issue than the temporal destination of a, of a nation. If you come to Jesus with a question about justice of taxes to Tiberius or to Caesar, he'll turn it into a personal command aimed right at your own heart. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If you come to Jesus with a complaint about the injustice of your brother who won't divide the inheritance with you, he'll turn it into a warning uh, to your own conscience. So let's go back to the question, why does a message on peacemaking from the Sermon on the Mount focus on the individual issues of prayer and greetings and personal reconciliation? Aren't these just, aren't aren't these insignificant compared to all the issues of war and military budgets and the opioid addiction across our country and, and all kinds of other craziness that's going on in our world, international terrorism and on and on? The answer is no, because the point of these personal issues in the Sermon on the Mount is to make crystal clear. Here it comes. You ready? Crystal clear that every individual within the hearing of my voice and the hearing of Jesus' voice must come to a new, must become a new creature, must become a new creation. If you're to have eternal life, you must have a new heart. You got to have a new heart. Without a merciful, pure, peacemaking, new heart, you can't be called the children of God. And you can't be called the children of God at judgment day. And that's why the matter is so heavy. Is Jesus, does he confine his views, confine his views to just personal versus the whole world? Is he out of touch? because he regards salvation of your soul as a more heavy matter than the destiny of a nation on earth. Here it comes, you ready? Put this last one up. Blessed are you peacemakers who pray for your enemies and greet your opponents with love and sacrifice like your heavenly father for the reconciliation of people to God and to each other. For you will be called children of God and inherit eternal life in the kingdom of your father. Oh, are you still a rebel? Are you still a rebel? Today's the day you put up the white flag and you surrender. If you are, it's, today's your day. Will you bow your head with me? Thank you for a direct, straight up message like this from you, father. Thank you. That sometimes you can be this straight and this direct in the, mid, uh, in the midst of being compassionate and peacemaking and even talking about peace. You be this straight and tell us what's at stake here. Your heads bow before God and if you still got the old one and not the new one that you can have, today's your day where you can put up the white flag and surrender and get a new one. It'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. You'll have to give up your life. But God sent his, his son Jesus to purchase you with the blood that was shed and spilt at the cross. So much so that you could bathe in it and wash in it and become clean.
That's what he wants to do for you today. He wants to turn a rebel heart into a peacemaking heart, a pure heart, a merciful heart, and he can do it. You just gotta exchange it for, for Jesus today. You gotta give it all up. Cost you everything. And I'm telling you, it's worth it. Thank you, Lord, on this Father's Day, we can do that. We have that kind of opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.